I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. How are you doing, podcasts? Adam Buxton here. Just taking a walk on yet another overcast April evening. But fear not, golden balls on the way next week, according to my phone's weather forecast. Fingers crossed, because hey, we could all use a bit of sunshine. How are you doing, Rosie? I am not too bad, bit worried. Why are you worried? Russia? Syria? Donald Trump? No, I did appear on the stairs before we went out and it's really yellow and it's changed the colour of the carpet and I'm worried you're going to be angry when you find out. Well, you've peed on pretty much every other part of the house. Why should I be upset about the stairs joining the pee-pee patchwork? Oh, wow, you're really easy going and cool. Yep, so my wife tells me. Is that my wife's thing from Borat? No! How many times do I have to explain? All right. I'm sorry, Rosie, I love you. It's just the Cold War. Look, I should tell the listeners about this week's episode, number 72 of the podcast, which features a conversation with an important figure in my life. British-born producer and director Fenton Bailey, who, along with his excellently named partner Randy Barbato, set up the production company World of Wonder. Now, in the early 90s, I used to stay up late and watch World of Wonders show Manhattan Cable. Some of you will be old enough to remember that. It was hosted by Laurie Pike. And she would introduce weird clips from New York public access shows and just be cool and funny and New Yorkish. I was quite in love with her. And it was one of a number of World of Wonder programs that showcased and celebrated marginal culture, often with quite a trashy or camp aesthetic. World of Wonder also produced shows with a more serious journalistic edge, like L.A. Stories, which was one of the first of its kind to encourage subjects to document their own lives in the wake of the 1992 L.A. riots with newly affordable camcorder technology. World of Wonder also worked with John Ronson early on in his career. They produced his series The Secret Rulers of the World, as well as a late-night talk show about subcultures and conspiracy theories called For the Love Of, also hosted by John. And it turned out, fun fact, that one of the people who used to watch For the Love Of on occasion was director Stanley Kubrick, whose estate later allowed access to his archives for John Ronson's 2008 documentary Stanley Kubrick's Boxes. True. But anyway, back to World of Wonder. In an effort to tap into British homemade video culture, Channel 4 commissioned World of Wonder to make a show called Takeover TV in 1995. I sent some videos in that I'd made while I was at art school, and I ended up presenting several episodes of that show. And by that time, uh, Joe Cornish, my childhood friend, was also involved And we went on to make The Adam and Joe Show together for Channel 4 between 1997 and 2001, with much of it filmed and edited in World of Wonder's modest office space opposite Brixton Tube in South London. 
But to this day, the bulk of World of Wonders output, which currently includes the phenomenally successful RuPaul's Drag Race, is overseen from their offices in Los Angeles. Fenton and Randy moved to LA after meeting in New York in the early 80s. And as you'll hear, it was there in New York that Fenton and Randy formed their electronic dance duo, The Pop-Tarts. And in the course of gigging around New York's clubs, they met not only musician and drag artist RuPaul, but the so-called Club Kids, a group of outrageous party scenesters whose number included Michael Eilig. Fenton and Randy had already begun filming the antics of the Club Kids when Michael Eilig and his roommate Robert Riggs murdered fellow Club Kid Angel Melendez. And that story formed the basis of World of Wonder's 1998 documentary Party Monster and was further adapted as a 2003 feature film of the same name starring Macaulay Culkin and Seth Green. Now, although I owe a great deal to both Fenton and Randy, I suppose it was Fenton that I got to know better over the years because he tended to be in the UK a little bit more than Randy. So I guess that's why I talked with just Fenton on this occasion rather than both of them, in case you're wondering. Our conversation took place in November of last year, 2017, at World of Wonders LA offices in a room that looked down over one of the most tourist-heavy parts of Hollywood Boulevard, famous for its star-paved walk of fame. But before I asked Fenton about those early days in New York and beyond, I started by offloading about my plane journey over from the UK the day before and my attempts during the flight to watch a 2016 documentary made by Fenton and Randy about the controversial photographer Robert Maplethorpe. I'll be back with exciting podcast-based gossip and more recommendations at the end of the podcast, but right now, here we go. plane yesterday on my way over and I, I made the mistake of having a couple of drinks you're a frequent flyer right mm-hmm. do you mm-hmm. drink i do yes but i try to sort of keep it under control yeah because you just feel awful exactly you just feel much worse you really do because i had a couple of drinks i had you know I, I was on my own and i was flying to la and you, you sort of feel slightly off the leash you know yes yeah, yeah. right definitely it's party time so i had a gin and tonic and then I said yes to a wine with my meal. Right. And everything's good up to that everything's point. Everything's good. And then you get about an hour of euphoric excitement. Right. right. And you're checking stuff out on TV that you're going to watch. And I was thinking at that point, I was thinking, finally, this is the time I can watch the Mapplethorpe documentary. Wow. Mapplethorpe. Was it on the plane? No, but I had it with me. <laughs> I, guess, yeah. I had it with me, yeah. A lot of penai for, well, exactly. uh, for a fly. <laughs> That's the thing. So I put it up on my laptop and my laptop screen is even larger than the <laughs> screen in the back. And then about five minutes in, 
know, it's, who is it? Newt Gingrich or someone? Saying, look yeah, at the pictures. Look yeah, at the pictures. And there's a montage that, of that is just the beginning. Big there's cocks. a lot of big cocks. You know, <laughs> just all the way through. Yeah. Because we put extra ones in. Extra cocks. Thinking HBO would make us take them out, and of course they didn't. Yeah. So it's like it's a big cock fest. Right. Yes. Sometimes I'd have to watch cuts on the plane. And I would make it as tiny as I could make it, like the smallest, you know, but thumbnail, so I could like, I just that. see it and do my notes. Well, <laughs> anxious about people looking over my shoulder. Exactly. That's what I was doing. I minimised the window. Yes, I, I, I you had, do minimise the window. I was fearful that my neighbour was a little conservative. He introduced himself as an ex-Navy man, and then he spent Before the rest or of, after the cocks? Before the cocks. Right. And then he spent the rest of the flight playing, I know, some sort of nerdy computer game mm. with his light on. The whole way. He was a really nice guy, actually, and he would have turned it off if I'd asked him, but oh, it was driving me crazy. So I got self-conscious and paranoid about the cocks and thought, oh, I'm not going to enjoy this. I, you know, I, if I'm going to watch cocks, I want maximum cocks. Right, you can't. Full, full screen yeah. cocks. You know, it's, it's like David Lynch says about watching films on your phone. He's like, when people say they watched a film on their phone, that's not watching a movie. You can't watch a movie on your phone fucking phone <laughs> um, right which I sort of agree with anyway I well, thought you can I get the gist yeah but I thought I wasn't going to do it justice anyway but then I, I started getting that thing of feeling incredibly uncomfortable in my oh. skin you mm-hmm. know what I mean mm-hmm. I imagine it's what it's like going cold turkey when people talk about not being able to get comfortable and getting the sweats and things like that. I right. always have that on a plane. And I don't know if it's to do with the booze or not. It's the altitude and the booze. So you sort of bloat up and you, your feet start to sort of feel weird. Right. And you just, you just feel really you uncomfortable. can't get comfortable. Yeah. And it's too hot one moment. And then yes. you, you turn on the air and then, and then you get cold and you pull mm-hmm. on the blanket. And, and you have that weird kind of sweat. It's oh, awful. And I have to get up. And I always think of Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys who had an episode on... On a plane, <laughs> just before they did Pet Sounds and stuff, he decided to quit touring, partly because of this episode he had. He just started freaking out and saying, I can't be on this plane! I can't be on it! No, no, it's not, this is not right! They had oh, to, you don't want that. No, no, but I felt very close to that yesterday. But you've always felt ambiguous about flying, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I don't mind it so much now, actually. It changed when I had children, funnily enough. So your DNA is safe. You're, you're, yeah, you're I think entrusted that, to the biosphere. I think that's you're, what it is. Yeah, it must be on, go. on some level. My, my work is done. <laughs> I'm ready to go down. <laughs> Although I was thinking yesterday on my way to LA, I was thinking, fuck this, I'm too old for this. I don't want to. So it's plain stuff. Yeah, what, just ready for, for teleportation. I really am. Mm. And then you get to LAX and. It's a shit airport. It's shit and everyone's horrible to you and you get stared at like a sort of sex killer by the immigration people. <laughs> the whole atmosphere is like you've done something wrong and you're going to get busted any second and welcome to America. That's definitely the vibe now. So how did you come to be in New York in the first place? Because you are a nice British man. Are you even an Oxford educated nice British man? I am, yeah. Right. Yeah. What were you doing at Oxford? I read... English. Oh. I, I was just reading Tina Brown's Vanity Fair diaries and uh-huh. in her introduction. She talks about she read English at Oxford. And she put in parenthesis, that means studied. <laughs> I guess you have to explain what reading means. It's not like <laughs> reading the instructions on a packet. <laughs> right. I read English the other day. So I read English, yes. I did theatre and things. You did theatre, right. Theater and did you yeah. have any idea at that point that 
what you were going to do or where you wanted to head? No. Well, I knew I'd seen The Naked Civil Servant Mm -hmm. on TV when I was 16 at Christmas. And I was like, whatever I do, I just have to get to America. Was that Quentin Crisp? Yes. Right. And that was uh, John Hurt playing Quentin Ah, Crisp. Of course. Just the most fabulous camp thing. So that was what I was like, I've got to get to America. And I just thought all my (laughs) problems would be solved if I went to America. So I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do because there was the, you know, after Oxford you could do, if you were sort of an arty sort of English reading person, what are you going to do? You're going to do media. Uh, So there was the BBC, you know, I didn't really fancy that. And I just didn't know what to do. I was a bit clueless, really. But I just knew I had to get to America. And then my roommate, lovely guy, Tim Whitby, he, his mother was a major media executive. So he just knew what to do, because mm-hmm. I had no clue. And he applied for this thing called a Harkness Fellowship. And basically, it promised you two years in America, tuition paid, living expenses, just everything. And he was applying for it. And he said, I'm never going to get it. It's very competitive. And I thought, "Mm, well, apply for it too, you know. And it was like a nightmare application. And I I remember being such a daze after the interview. But long story short, I got it and he didn't, which was really unfortunate. Oh, man. Um, His mother, I don't think, ever forgave me. So I went to NYU film school. And what year was that when you arrived in New York? That was 1982. (laughs) 82, yeah. yeah. Oh, that was a good year. Were you into the music that year? Oh, yes, of course. It was Psychedelic Furs, Love My Way. Do you like that? Oh, yeah. And there was Soft Cell, Tainted Love. Sure. Oh, that and I guess the year before had been, you know, Don't You Want Me Baby. Like, yeah. Everywhere, Human League. That's right. Yeah. I love it. I mean, that was my year, 1982. That was peak. I love everything in the charts. It was really the pop manifestation of those synths. That was that first wave of like yeah. synths and like, you know, warm leatherette and uh, the normal and um, silicon teens and mute records, I think, had just launched. And yeah, yes. it was very. I didn't know about any of that stuff. So for me, it was all the poppier end of all that, mm. the chart manifestation of that. Right. And Gary Newman. And oh, love Gary Newman. Oh, oh that's yes. Haircut 100, me and yes. Joe. Well, Joe got me into Haircut 100 and. You know, I liked right. madness. I liked all oh, the right. music yeah. videos and yeah. all that stuff. It was great. So you're at NYU. Well, here's the thing, you see, because unlike you, I didn't like guitars because I couldn't play a guitar. Yeah. I had no musical ability whatsoever. But I love synthesizers because you program it and it goes plink plonk. Yes. And I love drum machines. And I was at NYU and that's where I met Randy, who, you know, together we started World of Wonder. But Randy and I met and the thinking was very wrong, but the sort of gist of it was Hollywood then was impossible to get into and so almost the independent film business didn't really exist but we thought well if we became pop stars we'd have hit records and with all the money we made we'd be able to make films that was really genuinely what we were thinking and so together we started a band called the Pop Tarts and because I had no musical ability whatsoever synthesizers were just perfect because I could do that and this was like, you know, a little bit before Blue Monday, mm-hmm. which really is the ultimate drum machine hit. Isn't yeah. It? I mean, there is no better. And I thought, oh, well, we could do that. And I got my scholarship money and they, they said, well, you don't have to get an NYU anymore. You can use it to start the Pop Tarts. So we started a band. And who were your reference points then? Who did you feel you were emulating? Well, retrospectively, it was really the Pet Shop Boys. But... 
the Pet Shop Boys didn't exist then, or if they were, they were sort of still making demos and, you know, didn't know who they were. But it was a little bit of ELO, was sort of the sort of wish to sort of have lush orchestral arrangements oh, over these right. synthesizers. So not the kind of minimalistic, not like suicide or something like no, that? No, no, no. It was nothing grim about it. I mean, it was camper than a row of tents, really. It was like, it was so camp. I don't know what we were thinking, because no one was ever going to go along with it. You know, it was like... Now, maybe, yes, but then it was like, you know, you're gay and you're out. And we didn't think of ourselves necessarily as a gay band, but you just take one look. You know, I wore a gold lame toga and a big sort of moire bow, and Randy wore some sort of hideous robe made out of fabric you'd use for curtains. And where would you play? We played at um, Pyramid Club, Danceteria, Limelight. We played China Club. We played all the sort of... Even, we even played CBGBs, actually. Did you? Yeah. Um, I was quite scared. Cause, I'm sure. You know, did you pack it out with your friends or were there scary? Of course. Right? No, of course we did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we played some quite macho venues. Like, Well, I suppose CBGBs was the most macho place. It's supposed to be really genuinely disgusting place. Oh, it was vile. I mean, really was because I was like, this is not, I'm not into this sort of graffiti and smelly loos and cockroaches yes I, I was like drum machines and you know I'm, Gary Newman was an inspiration I wanted that you know clean and sort of professional yeah One wanted Christmas. to be a robot exactly not exactly a, not a vagrant <laughs> exactly <laughs> wanted to be a well paid robot and uh, but we persisted and we ended up you know we got a a music publishing deal and actually that money the, from the music publishing deal is what we used to start World of Wonder the, the company so the plan sort of worked well the, the, the hits bit eluded us right. you know, we, it's oh. harder to write a number one than people make <laughs> out well you know we did we were vindicated 25 years later with uh, Armin van Helden you know who he is right yeah our first single was called New York City Beat, and we were we did get a record deal. We were signed to the same label that Lisa Lisa and the Cult Jam were signed to. Uh-huh. You know, I wonder if I take you home. Uh, same label that George Kranz, Dindada, was signed to. I don't know George Dindada, One of the most annoying songs of that period. Yeah. And you know, we had a record deal, and, and the record came out. It was called New York City Beat in 84 anyway it went nowhere it was in fact it did it went straight into the bargain bin at St Mark's Base Records where you could buy it for 25 cents where I imagine is where Armand van Helden found it some years later because he sampled the entire thing like the verse the chorus the whole thing and made a record called New York City Beat that he released and was a big hit in Europe wow and it was in um Oh, Adam Sandler movie, The Zohan. Oh, don't mess with The Zohan. Mm-hmm. That's one of his better ones. Lying in bed, trailer for The Zohan comes on. That's New York City beat. And Rue, Paul called us up and said, do you know Rue was doing some gigs in Europe? He said, you know that song you did? It's a big hit in Europe. And we're like, yeah, yeah. I know. But it was. And so, you know, we went after him and um, we won. Good one. Yeah. Was he... So we had a hit. Okay. We had a big hit. Congratulations. Thank you very much. That's amazing. 25 years. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't he have to apply, like, beforehand? Didn't he have to clear the publishing? Well, he should have, yeah. But right. he initially, when our lawyers contacted his lawyers, he initially said that he had written a song himself. Oh. <laughs> but fortunately, we still had the, the record. Yeah. We just said, look, listen. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's the same. I mean, his version, I guess, is better. 
bit more stripped down, you know, yeah. a bit less gay, I think. Really. <laughs> it's a bit of a pounding sort of, you know. I've identified what is wrong with this song. It's yes. too gay. It's too gay. <laughs> I'm removing the gay with my special anti-gay computer. He's gay, isn't he? I don't know. No. I'm never, you know, a friendship has not blossomed. Right. Okay. I mean, I don't think... I wonder if he's listening. I hope he doesn't feel badly. But nah, he's fine. He's got bigger I'm fish sure. to fry. Yes, I think so. Hello, fact-checking Santa here. Armand Van Helden is actually a heterosexual man from Boston, Massachusetts, so he doesn't speak with a weird European accent. Merry Christmas. <laughs> and who were the people that you were on the scene with back in New York? Instead of film editing class, we would go to happy hour at the Pyramid, and... That's where we met Martin Burgoyne, who was Madonna's bestie. And he, I remember him showing me this album cover of this blonde woman with her hand on her face. And it was the cover of the first LP. Uh-huh. He was sort of the stylist and a designer. And then, of course, in, we also met Rue, RuPaul, during that period. Randy and I can't quite remember. Like, I have a very clear recollection of being in Atlanta on tour and seeing RuPaul wheat-pasting posters of himself. <laughs> and the poster said, RuPaul is everything. You know, typically sort of modest, self-effacing <laughs> thing. He's wheat-pasting posters of himself and he was in thigh-high waiter boots and football shoulder pads with shredded bin liners off and a jock strap and a huge sort of ratty wig. I thing. think I had the same look around that it was time. A fabulous look. Yeah. But then we also saw him at the New Music Seminar where he was causing a scene but immediately there's some story about Picasso Picasso's father was a great painter I think and when he saw what his son could do he put down his paintbrush and it was a bit like that with me and Randy when we saw RuPaul we were like we have no business uh, you know, okay. we, we put down our drum machines what was he doing then was he singing his own music or? yeah he was in a band called Wee Wee Paul and he'd also <laughs> <laughs> That is a good name. Right? And he was just... And what he, is a wee-wee pole? What well, is, I think it's exactly what you think it is. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not a pole that you wee on. It is no, the, I guess the pole you use it's to the, wee with. It's the pole. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> very sort of punk. Uh, and he was doing this sort of genderfuck look. And I think he'd sometimes perform with the Now Explosion. So they were from Atlanta and he'd moved to New York. And he was, he was just performing in clubs at Pyramid and... Larry T's Palace Debuté and Go-Go Dancing. I mean, you couldn't miss him. He was so sort of charismatic, you know. Was he part of that whole sort of Paris is burning no. scene? Of, the was whole, that, was the, that before then? No, it was sort of concurrent. But that, that was sort of uptown. Voguing m- and... Voguing. That was much more uptown scene. Okay. Like, way uptown. Not like the sort of uptown downtown. Like, I mean, they were up in Harlem and the Bronx. And it was just a very... Really, it wasn't until Paris is Burning, certainly that I was aware of that of that scene. The documentary, you mean? Yeah, yeah. in the ni- early 90s, right? Yeah. Right, okay, I just always assumed... He was he very was... much part of a downtown club scene. Ah, right. Danceteria, the, the, Limelight, you The know, grimy, more DIY. Tunnel, Roxy, yeah. Mud Club. Did you hang around with the club kids, um, <laughs> so-called, or...? Well, yeah, Randy and I would DJ sometimes at Danceteria, yeah. and this annoying little prick was a busboy and he'd come up to us and say can you play Blondie's Heart of Glass he always wanted that and his name was Michael Alig and we were like oh, here he comes you know but he was very sweet actually he was very nice and 
one day he called us up and said, oh, you know, how do you throw a party? Because, you know, you could, at that time in New York, you could make a living as a sort of event promoter doing these parties. And that's part of what we did as well. So we, he took us to McDonald's because he said he'd take us out for dinner and he took us to McDonald's and we told him everything we knew. And we'd like, you need a mailing list and you do this and you do that. And he was off. I mean, I can't say that we created the Club Kids, but he was definitely a driven person who was just this cute kid, busboy, who wasn't going to let anything stop him. And And for for people who don't know, who were the Club Kids and what was that scene? Well, generationally, you see, so you have these sort of arty Club 57 scene, John Sex and Magnuson, you know... Keith Haring, that sort of group who were doing these sort of cabaret-type things. And Randy and I came in on the tail of that. And then you had this sort of... I suppose like any sort... It was kind of like high school, you know. There, were the, there was a sort of very... fairly rigid hierarchy of who did what and who was who. And in comes someone like Mike Lalig, who no one would give the time of day to. And no one really wanted to let him into their clubs or he was just a busboy. It was very, it was slightly snobby and elitist. And with the club kids, he created this completely alternative scene of people who deliberately looked ridiculous because they wouldn't, no one thought they were cool. And because no one would take them seriously as cool, they decided to be completely uncool and created this sort of attention shifting movement that was just freakish and absurd and ridiculous. And that was really the, the, the club kids who really did kind of take over from this this other scene, this sort of, you could call it a celebutant scene or a sort of just a downtown artist scene, mm-hmm. really. And so they shifted the emphasis onto this more, was it quite hedonistic? and Very hedonistic. It was just famous for famousness sake. It wasn't, these, these club kids weren't necessarily poets or performance artists. They didn't necessarily sing. They didn't necessarily, they were, you know, in a very Lee Bowery sense of way. They, they were the canvas. They were the product. Right. That, that and so they would looks. look crazy. There's some footage on YouTube of them on Geraldo. Yeah, yeah, all, yeah. Um, all looking mad. And as you, you mentioned, yes. Lee Bowery. And yes, they are making themselves into little crazy DIY works of art. Yes. And they were fueled by huge quantities of pills. And Oh, well, that came later. Because ah, Michael Eilig was didn't drink, didn't do any kind of drugs. In fact, he kind of made fun of people who did. Uh-huh. But at some point, he decided or realized that the sort of... The art of doing this nightlife promoting thing was to appear to be fucked up, to appear to be drunk, appear to be on drugs. And I guess at some point the appearance crossed over into a sort of into the reality and when ecstasy came along there was this sort of huge popularization of ecstasy they all jumped on that bandwagon and then i'm not saying ecstasy was a gateway drug but it seemed that it did go from there to heroin and you know just spiraled into something yeah. much darker yes yes and that's mid 80s the club kids really uh, emerged Yes, late 80s, and then the murder, because that's sort of the... We were trying to... Randy and I, would, we moved to L.A. in 94, and we were trying to make a film about the club kids because we thought they were an extraordinary phenomenon, and everybody hated them. But we were like, it's amazing how they could get all this media attention, and everybody resented them because they said they did nothing. It was just really fascinating to us. It was, a, was it comparable to the New Romantics in the... I suppose so, but the, the New Club Romantics, people? they... 
fronted bands, right? They they, they were did doing something, things. right? Right. I mean, the, these guys were just scenesters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, very. I mean, it was very situationist, though. I mean, they were, you know, the the parties they did, the blood feast parties, and the, the sort of disco two thousand, the kind of freaky circus, perverse circus they were doing. I mean, it was very inspired. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it annoyed people so much, we thought, oh, this, would be, this really should be documented. But everyone was like, no, you know, it wasn't, couldn't really get any funding for it until there was a, you know, the story of this, this murder. And that was in, that was in 96. So, yeah. And so by that time, you'd shot a load of footage of these guys yeah. hanging out, doing their thing. Yeah. And then what was the first you heard about the murder? Well, I can't remember when we first heard about it, but I did have a sufficient presence of mind to go to New York and interview Michael Ehrlich. And we did like two or three interviews with him after we'd heard about the murder, but before he was arrested. So it was pretty powerful stuff because then once he got arrested, we had a story and Channel 4 came in and gave us the money to make the documentary. And did Michael, Michael Ehrlich murdered Angel Melendez? Right. So what happened is, yes, Angel Melendez was a club kid and a drug dealer. And he's, his signature, Angel, because he had this signature thing of walking around with these giant angel wings, mm-hmm. which in a packed club is actually a very annoying thing to do because you're always <laughs> swiping people in the face. Right. And, you know, and uh, maybe not enough to get killed for absolutely him. not no he didn't deserve that at all yeah. and he definitely there's no question he fell in you know I don't really it's one of those things I think that will always defy as perhaps any you know why anyone kills anyone mm-hmm. is very hard to understand but Michael was definitely by this point in the sort of abyss of deep deep addiction I was pretty sure he was going to die of an overdose mm-hmm. or you know, something going to come to an unpleasant end. And then, you know, he, Angel went to his apartment to, and they got into a fight over money that was owed and that was the end of Angel. Bashed him on the head. Right. And then chopped him up. Yeah. Put him in bin bags. Yeah. And tried to get rid of it. Yeah. And those were found fairly quickly. Right. They? they washed up on in Staten Island. Yeah. I mean, that was the extraordinary thing is that from when he committed this murder to when he was arrested it was a number of months and during that time he was going around saying that he did it and he put murderer on his forehead oh in God. sharpie and I mean because he was still in the I mean just very strung out but he also thought that if he told people he had murdered someone that was such an outrageous thing to say that people would think he was joking yeah. and that it was part of his act. Right. And I think, actually, frankly, I believed it. I didn't believe he was capable of murdering someone. And I thought the whole thing was a, an elaborate hoax. You know, uh-huh. that Angel was off somewhere and that Angel was going to reappear at one of his parties, descend from the roof with his wings, and it would all be some sort of ultimate situation. Some sort of prank. bad taste prank. Yeah. 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 And he did, you know, he excelled in doing bad taste pranks. And as someone who was engaged in shocking people, yeah. you know, you always need to up the ante. So I, that's what I thought. So he went to prison for how long? 17 years, yeah. And he's out now. He's out. In fact, we've been filming him. Right. Since his, because, you know, we made Party Monster the documentary, then we made Party Monster the movie with Macaulay Culkin playing Michael Eilig and Seth Green plays James St. James. And it's very much... 
sort of twisted buddy movie because James and Michael were these very competitive, not frenemies. They were sort of best friends, but but you know always. James wasn't doing any murdering, though. No murdering. He's, James was trying to get his act in together. In fact, he sat a few meters away is, from us yeah, in the office yeah. outside. So uh, during that whole time, James never visited him once. And we, we're there when Michael comes out of jail and they're reunited. And we've been filming for the last mm, two years. Um, it's called After Party. Where can people party. see that? That's on. Well, it's 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 still being. Um, we're still oh, we're still shooting it. Ah, that's so, so. How will what form will that take? We think it's going to be a, a series rather than just a single feature, and it's going to be we're going to put it on our streaming network, mm-hmm. Wow Presents Plus. So we're going to unveil that. Michael is doing YouTube videos as well, though, isn't he? He is, I think. And he is. I mean, what's the deal with him now? Then is he? Does he? Is he in therapy and stuff? Or, I mean, how does he present himself these days? How does he deal mm-hmm. with the fact that he's someone who's murdered someone? Well, you know, and and he is sort of enjoying a certain degree of notoriety off the yeah. back of it. Well, I don't, thanks to on, you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of questions in there. Like, I, like. How does it, I was interested to see how someone copes with life when they come out yeah. of prison after 17 years. And the short answer is not well, you know. And in a way, I suppose, in narrative, you always hope for some redemption or mm-hmm. some sort of transformation. And I wouldn't say there is that. I mean, do you and Randy have to sit down and have uh, deep discussions about telling a story like that? Mm-hmm. And... and because it has an effect on that person, presumably, as well, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, the, the, you're right. And in this, this is the most difficult case of all for us. Do you engage with those grey areas when you're making these programmes? And uh, um, do you ever sort of talk about it? Because I remember the first, one of the first shows I ever saw mm. that turned me on to your stuff was a, a documentary called Videos, Vigilantes and Voyeurism. Right. Uh, which was, I saw on the BBC in the early 90s, right. maybe 93 or something. And it was in the wake of the Rodney King beatings and a wave of people empowering themselves with affordable camcorder technology. Right. Right. And the effect that it was having and the beginnings of the CCTV panopticon that we right. now live in. right. And that documentary was, on the one hand, trashy and thrilling in the it was sense a clip of, show in some respects, yeah, right? Uh, uh, and there was a certain amount of voyeurism from mm-hmm. our point of view involved because some of the clips were outrageous of things that had been caught on camera. Mm-hmm. But you were also very much engaged with the nuances of where this was headed, yeah. morally speaking, or you know, you weren't making any judgments certainly, but it was. Certainly, that was part of the agenda. So, uh, yeah, I'm just kind of making a statement rather than asking you. A no, question. it's a good, but it's a good statement to make because it is so interesting. But it wasn't like World of Wonder for me was always not just as clear cut as being lurid and voyeuristic. Oh, thank you. There was something else. <laughs> there was that. There was that. But right. there was something else going on as well in in tandem, which made it really compelling. Well, it is so. In- I mean, it is. That coming of the sort of camcorder revolution and just look at where we are now. And I don't think then I imagined, I didn't imagine now or then, but you could see something was happening. I still myself can't completely process the amount of which we self-document and self-broadcast. Mm-hmm. 
And the other day, have you been in a situation where you see a public confrontation and people start videoing it on their phones? I have not, no. I saw that for the first time the other day. Instead of, like, trying to help? Yeah. They're just like, yeah. You know. a, a couple got on the train and they were having a massive row, a young couple, screaming at each other to, to the extent that I thought it was a prank. I thought it was one of those things like improv everywhere, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to do some confrontational theatre and right. see what, you know, blow the minds of the straight. <laughs> and um, so I was sitting there thinking, hmm, I don't know. I don't even know if this is real, but let's see where it goes. But at one point it was getting quite gnarly and it looked as if maybe the girl was going to start beating the guy and maybe he was going to fight back. And so at that point I turned round and was ready to go over and intervene but as i turned around another guy got up and just started filming them so it actually ended up having a similar effect because it, it calmed the situation down mm. it shifted their f- focus of attention onto him and she started screaming at him going don't film me please i'm having a huge argument with my boyfriend you know excuse me we're being insane here can you just not <laughs> can you respect our privacy and uh it was really That's weird. Great. It was really weird how he just f- made the judgment, which I understood, that they had transgressed society's normal rules to such a degree that he was now he now had license to film them. Do you think it was that, or do you think he was just like, oh, this could make a good clip on YouTube? Well, like- yeah, but I think that. Um, that's probably what he was thinking consciously, but subconsciously, I think he must have thought that he had been authorized to do so by how crazy they were being, how loud they were being. And interesting too that it, them suddenly becoming aware that what they were doing was going to be broadcast calmed them down. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> it's shocking when you see footage of yourself that you didn't realize was being taken. Right. Oh wow, that's an amazing point. I never considered that point till now. You're so deep and you made me think. And now I'm going to change my life somehow. Thank you very much for your wonderful deep and amazing point. Your deep and amazing point. Your deep and amazing point. You moved from New York to LA at a certain point. Yeah. Right off the earthquake, the Northridge earthquake of 1994. Well, we one of the things we did was the LA riots happened and continuing this theme it's like we were fascinated by the fact that the Rodney King tape played such a central role in that because their court on tape was this appalling police beating and then a jury acquitted the police officers and then you LA went up in flames so this piece of tape you know caused this city to burn down so we came to LA and we gave camcorders to like 10 different people in LA to make video diaries about their lives over the course of a year. It ended up being the year from the riots until the verdict was returned in the civil case, which... The Rodney King verdict. The Rodney King verdict, which turned out to be a bit of an, an anticlimax, the actual thing. But it was interesting to see these uh, LA Times reporter, a young gang kid, an old gang banger... Um, someone running for mayor, cops. They were all making diaries about their lives and they were sort of interwoven into this two-and-a-half-hour feature documentary for BBC. Right. And one of those kids was Ennis. Yes. Who was Ennis then? How did you get to Ennis? Ennis was a kid who was living with his... Mm, not his father, really. His, like, guardian. And they, his guardian, Howard, ran a dry-cleaning store right at, at the flashpoint of the LA riots, right in the heart of South Central. And Ennis lived in the back of his dry-cleaning store. And was just a remarkable kid. He was like 11 when we met him. 
And how did you meet him then? We were doing casting. We were trying to find characters to give cameras to. And Selena, who was here doing the research, just said, oh, I met this kid. He was just hanging out and seemed interested in what I was doing. And we found that it wasn't living with his parents. And we managed to get in touch with his mother, who wasn't really supporting him and wasn't doing that well. And we ended up giving him a camera. And it really sort of focused him. And he just, he just took to it. And in fact, for the second trial, the civil trial of the Rodney King, he was down at the courthouse and became something of a sort of sensation because there's this kid with a camera, you know, African-American kid doing his own reporting. He wasn't involved with a gang at that point, though, was he? No, he wasn't. He was kind of truant from school, and we thought that what we should do is, if we could get him out of L.A., we would be doing him a service. And we found this sort of school that he could go to in North Carolina, and he went there and just had trouble adjusting and ended up actually being expelled because he punched someone. So he was back here in South Central and was just walking along the street and was... I I don't know if he was um, the extent of his gang involvement. He never really told us. He was definitely wearing a red sweatshirt, which was the Bloods, so probably not a good idea, you know, to be wearing gang colours mm-hmm. in South Central. He was walking on the street with his friend and car came up and shot him. And, so, and he died. Yeah. And so presumably, well, you know, you were one of the people that tried to get him out of mm. the environment that he was in because you could see he was a bright kid, interesting yeah. kid who was uh, in a place where things could easily go wrong for him. Yeah. Was it just because he was so young that in that case you felt, God, that we can't just stand by and do nothing? Right. Um, because that must have been very difficult as well. All the, that's a minefield, is getting involved in, in someone's life in that way, someone right. whose life is so different to yours from a totally different background. Yes, and probably we were very naive in that respect. But we'd finished the film, and it was, there was a sense that we couldn't just... You know, when you make films about people, they can be these very intense and intimate relationships, and then it kind of ends, you know? And... I think between consenting adults, that's okay. You know, you it's hard for you and it's hard for them or it takes an adjustment, but you do it. But with him, it just felt we just didn't feel we could and we didn't want to. And we, I think, naively... I mean, who knows what would have happened if we'd left him where he was, you know, if we hadn't sort of taken him to a school where he got kicked out, you know... I don't know. But things weren't going well for him before he went to that school. Right. So it's unlikely that you made things worse. Yeah, it was, it's a very, you know, it's a really sad story. Did it change your mind about um, the way you make documentaries and, and, and how you should conduct mm. yourself when you're mm. meeting people who are in trouble and, uh, and you're documenting their lives? And... I don't know. Um... We rarely make films where people are in dire circumstances, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Maybe that's a choice. I don't know. Ennis' death was a real lesson in how hopelessly deep the racial divide is and how deeply ingrained violence as a way of life is in America. And I think I was naive to that. And certainly 
the last, what, 20 years, I've only reinforced what a fucked up violent place this is, you know, and the mass shootings and the complete absence of gun control and the out-and-out racism, it's unbelievable. I mean, as shocking as it was then with one person's death, with Ennis's death, to me it's even more shocking now. I mean, the scale of it is so epic. And you, I suppose, you know, I came to America thinking, oh, this is the land of opportunity, which for me it was. And, you know, it's so optimistic and... Yeah, I mean, un, you know, I love the States and I know you do too and mm, there's so much to love about it. Yeah. But then it is at odds with, with, with something really sinister and... Yeah. That they refuse to... Well, I say they. I mean, we're all guilty of, of similar things, aren't we? But, but, but out here, there's a real sense that they just won't engage with certain... Realities. Pretty glaring realities. Yeah. Know? And they and they find ways to argue around them. And I mean, it's most glaring with gun control, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Sexual harassment also seems to be a mass point of denial. Yeah. A lot of... And you're like, I mean, even the Harvey Weinstein thing, you're like, really? Is your really a, uh, are you amazed at the scale of the I'm situation? I'm amazed at the scale of the situation. Right, okay. I'm really shocked. And so you have No one's, no, like even, look, I'm gay, so I'm not going to see a lot of heterosexual interaction. Well, we've so seen was, obviously with Kevin Spacey that well, it's not right, purely heterosexual. Right, exactly, exactly. And even then I'm like, you're kidding me. I mean, or, or yeah, yeah, and I, I just, what reality have I been like? No, of course. I mean, I, I, well, as you say, you're gay. I'm straight, but I'm not a woman. So we're not in that way in in particularly high risk areas. Right. But you never like have you in your career come across that? I mean, no. But I mean, why would I? You know, no one's. I'm not like a high <laughs> uh, value target. <laughs> and, well, I, and I hope I haven't been responsible. You know, in a, in a sort of casual. Right. It's weird, isn't it? When we were doing the Adam and Joe show back in the day, we were working with female researchers and APs and stuff. And, yeah. you know, there's the usual sort of silly bants. And some of that is like flirty. Yeah. But that's normal. I don't think, I hope it never... I don't think in. you were masturbating into pot plants. I mean, I, <laughs> in the it was the one time, but it was... <laughs> everyone was fine with it. Um <laughs> No, just like God, <laughs> it's, that's so visual. And what about mm. what about just being out here? Yeah, I mean, this might be wrong to conflate the two, but there's but there's a sort of culture of disrespect and arrogance in the TV and film industry out here. I think huh. that you get that even me. I mean, I haven't done much work out here at all, but even the few meetings I've had, you pick up on this sort of whiff of kind of toxic contempt almost. Mm. That, mm. that I feel contributes to, to, to this whole harassment culture in some way. I'm right, not saying that it's right. directly comparable. But you know what Absolutely. I'm talking about at all? Like, just, just yeah. the kind of behavior that is celebrated on shows like um, Entourage. Right. You know, or of, The of, Comeback. Yeah. Just execs being outrageously horrible. Well, yeah. I'm talking about Kevin Spacey, Swimming with Sharks was a film. Right. Yeah. One of the films that made his name where he yeah. played this loathsome... Bully right. exec. Right, that's true. And on the one hand, it was like, oh, isn't this guy appalling? But on the other hand, you know, there was something slightly cool and anti-heroish about them. And it's it's that 
it's that sort of like yeah isn't this out isn't this fun you know right. but I suppose we did like wherever we've encountered that we were, I just ended up avoiding it like um, yeah. I mean I did have some dealings with Miramax once of uh, Santino Rice a guest on Drag Race and there was some scheduling conflict and Miramax called up and they were horrendous just rude and abusive and bullying and like and it's like excuse me, we have him in first position and we'll let you know when we, you know, we're, and they were like screaming blue murder and I'd like out and I'm thinking, good God, I never like, you know, just steer clear of that lot. You yeah. know, it's just a toxic place. And you're probably right. I mean, it probably is like that, that as an industry that there is this You know, like contempt. this kind of nice guys finish last culture mm, mm. where... If you want to play with the, you want to play with the right. big dogs, and you got to right. play rough and yeah. mean, and and then once that, once you think that's okay, then yeah, why not? Yeah, coerce a, an actor to yeah. do whatever you want yeah. them to, because you know that's the way. Sorry, but that's the way it works. That's power dynamics. Right. Right. Let's go again. What don't you fucking understand? Kick your fucking ass! Let's go again! What the fuck is it with you? I want you off the fucking set, you prick! No! You're a nice guy! The, the fuck are you doing? No! Don't shut me up! No! No! Ah, da 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 like this! No! No! Don't shut me up! Ah, da 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 like this! Fuck's sake, man, you're amateur! Seriously, man, you and me, we're fucking done professionally. And so, of course, in the last few years, one of the pillars of the World of Wonder empire has been RuPaul. Yes. Ru came to us and said, will you manage me? And uh, we just started World of Wonder, and so we managed him early on That's at the beginning. Right. It was a funny choice of his, in a way, because, you know, Pop-Tarts had not had... We hadn't had that big hit single with Armand van Helden, thank you, yeah. at that point. But, I mean, he rightly surmised that we did know who to talk to and, and that, you know, the steps you had to go through. Supermodel was the single. It was the first single, yeah. You better work. Yeah. Work it, girl. <laughs> Do your thing. I mean, that's like 24 years ago. We taped it, like, literally, we did the video literally 24 years ago. And now, I mean, Drag Race is a right. massive phenomenon, right? It is. But it's crossed over, though. I mean, yeah. it's not just, you know, it's like everybody likes it. I, I feel out of the loop not knowing it. It's one of those things like Celebrity Love Island over in the UK where <laughs> you should really watch it. You should at least have an opinion on it. Um, and I'm now going to ask you yes. the question that always makes me audibly groan when people ask in oh, interviews. Really? Did you know at the time it was going to... <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, the, I know that question. No, we had no idea. And Ruin said. I'll do anything except a competition elimination reality show. And then... He thought it was too tacky. Right. Well, too tacky or too obvious. Whatever the reason was, he just didn't think it's what he should do. Okay. But long story short, we sat down with him and we pitched him all these different ideas. And he's like, you know, the one thing we should do is a competition (laughs) elimination reality show. And we sold it. So we had no idea. No idea. I mean, that's... That's the magic, isn't it? Really? Yes. Because if you knew it was a, if you could figure it out, obviously, we wouldn't be sitting here. Exactly. You know. I mean, who has ever been in it? Actually, once or twice, I, I've heard people sort of saying, "Yeah, we knew it was going to be massive really? when we were doing it." But I, I mean, bet they're lying. Probably, because once or twice, I've thought things are going to be massive, and they they haven't. Right. Speaking of which, it never fails. Actually, the bigger you think it's going to be, the smaller it is. Well, that's exactly the. the and now the, I try to like do the reversing. Oh, this is. And then yeah. often nothing does. 
<laughs> so it's like, that <laughs> doesn't work either way. <laughs> so you worked with a couple of geniuses mm. right at the very beginning of their mm-hmm. career. Do you remember how that relationship began? I totally remember it. Are you <laughs> kidding? I Like, first of all, not just because you're sitting here. Yeah. Like, to me, the Adam and Joe show is one of the most fun, creative things that I ever did. The only thing, well, one of the things that comes a close second to that is probably the Divine David. Oh, yeah. Who actually came out of, you know, Adam and Joe, too. Yes, we'll take over TV more. Right. Yeah. Right. And, but, but meeting you guys was amazing i mean my version is this and maybe you have a better version but like manhattan cable was a was really our first show and it was really our first successful show which was taking clips from these public access show in new york that were very wacky unlike anything else you'd ever seen on tv before there was no public access in the uk that's right yeah and so off the back of that we were able to persuade channel 4 to give us a chance to do takeover tv which was like the equivalent idea of like, well, let's get people with their camcorders to make their own shows and create a show called Takeover TV, which really was very uneven, you know. It but was, and it started out being a bit more awful. worthy, didn't yes. it? Like yes. Like tr- trying to be everything to all people, yeah. trying to be a good, diverse cross-section of right. society. This is because YouTube didn't exist. This was because viral videos didn't exist. We just didn't believe necessarily that wacky crazy unmotivated was the giant tsunami of the future you know we thought we had to pay some homage to other things but i remember i was sitting in a editing suite in brewer street around midnight with this pile of tapes to put together this proof of concept reel of for takeover tv and there was this i'd been through all the yeses and there was like sort of nuclear disarmament videos wrist slitting stuff i felt and then there was this pile of no's to tapes with no one. And I picked the top one off and it, the post-it note said, too clever for its own good. And I put it in <laughs> and it was you. It was you. And I can't remember what you were seeing. You sat on a loo and you had some headphones on and you had a satellite dish in your hand singing a song. I can't remember what it was. It was Randy Tart. Was the it name was of the Randy song. Tart. And maybe because of the Pop-Tarts, I felt a flush of nostalgia. Yeah. But it was really good, actually. It, it, it was, was a, brilliant. I, and I put it on the tape, you know? Yeah. And out of that, really, because Takeover TV went for a few seasons, but really out of that came the joy of the whole thing, which was the Adam and Joe show. Who put the post-it note on the uh, video? It's never been heard of again. Mm. I wish I could remember his name, a researcher. I mean, he's a very nice guy, but there was an epically wrong judgment call. Well, you know. depends on but your point of view. Right. No, I mean, it, I, 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 know, I know where he or she was coming from completely because it was, very, it was something I made at art school. It was too clever for its own good. I think what they identified was that it was too sort of self-aware trying too hard to be something that really I wasn't and it wasn't. Do you know what I mean? Like what, you, what you're always looking for when you're sifting through tapes, whether it's music or whether it's videos or whatever it happens to be, is you want something, or at least I want something kind of unfiltered, uh-huh. something genuine. You want to see someone really expressing themselves right. in an unusual, original way. Whereas... Oh, you were doing that. No question. You reckon? Yes, yes, yes. No, I I think he was wrong about that. I mean, it was very clever and it was very knowing, but it was also very funny. So I get what you're talking about, though. Like, you want to find something unintended. And that's such a fascinating, endless conversation about, you know, 
can you make camp or does camp just occur? Is it, you know, in these sorts of shows, is it all in the discovery of something that isn't as... Okay, Mariah Carey, brilliant singer, but actually what she gets more attention for is when she goes on New Year's Eve show and completely screws it up. Mm -hmm. So then the audience is involved in discovering how awful it is. Yeah. And it's not about the skill of delivering a perfect performance. And in fact... She can do all the perfect performances she wants, but no one really cares. What we love is the fuck-up. And isn't that kind of the whole concept behind the current president? It's just like <laughs> the fuckery of it all is what's keeping people engaged. Yeah, I, don't know, I don't know how much we love it. I, well, no, I don't know either. And like, it's a really hard one to figure out. Yeah. But we started doing TakeOver TV. So you got in touch with me. Yes. My details were with the tape. Yes, they were. I remember coming home from college I graduated from art school and when I got back home to my parents house in, in Clapham there was either a phone message from you yeah. or my mum had written down a message saying Fenton, I think I spoke to your mum uh-huh. I remember yes I think I spoke to Fenton your mum Bailey called he's from a TV company I was yeah. like whoa. whoa and then I spoke to you and this is a story I've told many times but you we're in the habit of using the word genius a lot. Still use it. You? <laughs> <laughs> you, you would describe everything as, you know, because on the phone, you're like, I, see, I saw your tape, I was watching your tape, it's genius. And so to me, I'd never heard anyone use that expression before. I was like, he's calling me a genius. This is amazing. Still, to this day, probably the best call I ever got, uh, work-wise. That makes me sad. <laughs> <laughs> nah, honestly, it was great. I loved it. And then when I met you, obviously, I realized that you used the word genius to describe more or less anything. <laughs> <laughs> you said that's right. You said someone bought me a cup of tea and I said, oh, that's genius. He's genius. <laughs> These curtains are genius. <laughs> Look at that. Oh, that door is genius. <laughs> <laughs> but you also said, oh, you've got this friend, Joe. And I thought, oh, God, who the fuck's Joe? <laughs> <laughs> and... It took, me, it took me a while to warm up to the Joe of it all, right? Uh-huh. But, but then, you know, Adam and Joe, it's like peanut butter and jelly. It's this genius combination. And that's a good bit of advice for people. I think I saw it written down somewhere and seeing it written down looked very bold. Someone else giving advice about getting started in comedy and things like that. And it's like, if you've got a funny friend, get them involved. Yes. I think also you can't always see everything yourself. No. The potential of, of something. And... If someone's in it with you, because there are dark moments of despair and <laughs> and uh, they can, like, cheer you on and you can cheer them on. Like, I mean, I, I, World of Wonder, like, I don't think would exist were it not for Randy. And I think without him, I wouldn't have done it. It would have been impossible. I think. Yeah. I mean, you've been in and out of a relationship with Randy. There was a period when you were together, right? Yes. So uh, we've been out of the relationship for the last 13 years. So yeah. we, were, we were together for like 20 years. When we met yeah. at film school, we were an item. Right. And uh, then filming Party Monster was the, the movie, was what finished us off. Oh, so, really? Yeah. So I, I just remember one morning realizing, oh, this is not, this, this, this part of the relationship was over, but we continued to work together. Yeah, which and, I, I really yeah. admire and I'm impressed by. Well, we went to couples therapy, yeah, which was crazy. I mean, at one point, the therapist, because we were really mad at each other and, and just not really talking. So the therapist's strategy was to 
jump around the room and to come over on my side of the room and stand behind me and put on my voice and say, Randy, I'm feeling this, and then run over to where Randy was sitting and put on Randy's voice. And You paid was, someone just to take the piss out of you. <laughs> basically, it was like, this is completely ridiculous. It was so embarrassing. Um, but it was useful. You know, I, mean, I think so. <laughs> That was a total waste of money. <laughs> yeah. Well, we did it for like we did it for like three or four sessions, and then we're like, cannot. This is just, yeah. You know, let's, let's just, just break up. Let's just be friends, so that we never have to do that again. Right. <laughs> That's great, man. I mean, I think Joe and I went through something similar. I think you have to when you work closely with you someone. Do. Yeah. It becomes difficult. The point about relationship, I think, is I was just thinking about it, they grow so. The longer any relationship goes on, it surely is like it's like a sort of Pokemon Go. It's increasing levels of difficulty. Yeah. It, it, it can't be any other way. Exactly. That's true, isn't it? And I, I know it seems so obvious, but now you mention it, it's like, oh, uh, yeah. Of course they develop and they go through different stages. You have in your mind an idea of a friendship as just being a thing. Mm. Uh, that you can rely on and it's always there and aren't afraid, you know, you've got to work to maintain it, but it's, it's this thing. But no, of course it changes and goes yeah. through different stages and the dynamic shifts and the power shifts around. Did How you, is your relationship now? Our relationship yeah. is good, yeah, me good. and Joe. Yeah, I yeah. just did a cameo um, on Joe's new film. Ooh. He is shooting as we speak. It looks really good, yeah. and it was great seeing him on set. He was on really good form, and, you know, I, I, I love him, and I'm happy for him now rather than feeling threatened by his right. success, which I certainly did for a while after, sure. after his first film came out. But what yeah. did you ever look at us when we were doing the Adam and Joe show and sort of think, oh, watch out? Watch out. Yeah, when, when, when Joe and I were working. Because we used to make the show in yeah. the offices of you World did, of Wonder. Yeah, upstairs. Yeah, in does. Brixton. Yeah. And you had an upstairs office area above the body shop. Right, right. And we went and that became our you room. You were locked in there. Yeah, you said, okay, that's your floor now. And you can turn that into your bedroom. Right. At first, I was thinking that I would actually genuinely be making the show in my bedroom because that's how we sort of started out doing things. But then I can't remember who it was said, actually, you're going to go mad if you do that. I think you would have done, don't you? Yeah. And yeah. your dad would have killed you. Yeah, no, it was yeah. definitely a good call. <laughs> so we had this um, shared space. But I was my thing was that I was so insecure and I was such a control freak. I wanted the control because I wasn't confident that I had that much to contribute oh. creatively. Oh, I think you're both control freaks, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Both of you, yeah. And I think probably, I imagine that's where the tussle was. Probably. But Joe was much more of a laissez-faire control freak in those days. He would just be... Well, I think it was difficult for him because so much of it was started out being in my area. Oh, right. At yeah. home and things right. like that, you know. So he felt that I he rightly felt that I was kind of jealously guarding this this zone creative zone I was right. the master of it this right. is my house this is on my terms what I say goes ultimately and he was contributing to that he was kind of the junior partner in that respect so when when it shifted to us doing it at World of Wonder mm. we were on a level playing field mm. and then I think I got even more insecure and then I started totting up the time that he was devoting to actually working on the show 
and I'd be thinking, I'm, I'm doing more late nights than Joe is. Well, you both worked so insanely hard on it. I mean, you know what I mean? And, and that, that's the only thing I ever, I was always thinking, God, I wish you could just do it quicker. I wish it just didn't take so long. I mean, of course, you, can't, you can never look at a piece of Chippendale furniture and say, oh, if only it was made like, if it came in a flat pack and I could self-assemble it, you know. Yeah. But that's, you know, and I always felt like such a crass TV person, well, always wanting more, faster. It, no, it wasn't, it wasn't really Chippendale furniture. it was beautifully handmade. No, come on. I mean, the Toy Story is just fantastic. Yeah, but you're right. They should. It, it, it was possible. It should have been possible just to churn them out. I mean, you look at Robot Chicken, which came out after we did... Uh, well, Robot Chicken is the other show. Yeah. yeah. But they found it's a way. Green. They found a way of doing it, yeah. uh, of, make, of being able to mass produce them and make them look beautiful as well and make yeah. them look homemade. I mean, they're almost too well made mm. because you sort of think, well, one person couldn't possibly make that. Mm. And our stuff genuinely was homemade. (laughs) And it looked that way. But yeah, no, you know, Fenton, let me go on record by saying thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to do all that and and being so fun and positive with it. And, and, you know, I had so many fun times and memorable times thanks to you guys and the stresses and strains and anxieties and insecurities that came out of it were all worth it I think oh thank you I mean it was like it was just it was just the best experience and the best adventure and I loved it too I loved every minute of it and I loved the fact I didn't have to do the late nights you know I just say genius you know and then <laughs> how right you were wait this is an advert for Squarespace Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code Buxton to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Hey, welcome back, podcasts. Fenton Bailey there of World of Wonder Productions. Thank you very much indeed to Fenton for giving up his time when I was in Los Angeles in November last year. It was lovely to see Fenton again. I wish I saw more of him. And I do owe him so much. You know, I don't don't think I'd actually heard the full story about him having rescued my tape from the reject pile all those years ago before I got my first job on Takeover TV. I'm very glad he did. I'm sure there are some people who aren't so pleased. 
but they'll be all right. Now, quite a bit of podcast business and bits and pieces to get through before I bid you farewell today. Uh, the Webby Awards. Wow, great response from the podcats, the quartermasters and the podcast faithful after my call out last week to say, please vote for me in the People's Voice um, section of the, the Webby Internet Awards, which are based in America. And subsequently, I am in a category for this podcast alongside uh, Alec Baldwin and Oprah. They are, I see them as the two big threats, although there's another podcast there, Sex, Death and Money, which is supposed to be very good as well. And I'm sure the other one is too. I keep forgetting the name of it and I fail to write it down. Apologies, no disrespect intended. But um, yeah, you guys uh, voted en masse. Thank you very much. And suddenly I went from fifth in my category to first within a few days. I think that probably had the effect of galvanizing some of the other people, especially Alec Baldwin. I think he mobilized the, uh, the Baldies, whatever they're called, now he is in first position and I'm trailing second. There's still a few days left to register your votes. I think the deadline is the 19th of April and I will put a link, I'll pin it to my Twitter feed. So it should be at the top of my Twitter feed there, a, a simple link that you will be able to click on and then cast your vote for me or whoever else you wish to vote for. Maybe it's Oprah, maybe it's Baldwin. Adam Buxton app news now. Occasionally people will get in touch with me and ask where they can hear some of the great, great sponsor jingles that I have made in the past. Oh, the great Squarespace jingle, the vegetarian shoes song, the argument on the train for Bose headphones, etc, etc. Because of course the sponsor reads rotate on this podcast. They're not burned in as it were. They come and go. But now you can hear a selection of some of my favourites on the Adam Buxton app, a free app, which has all sorts of goodies on there and quite a few of the jingles from the podcast and now the uh, sponsor jingles and reads as well, if you are unbelievably bored. Thank you very much indeed to really quite something who have developed the app and uh, are maintaining it. Really appreciate their continued support. There is some paid for content on the app, a uh, bonus episode of the podcast in which I chat to Garth Jennings. I think it's 99p you have to pay to listen to that, but really it's just a way of supporting the ongoing maintenance of the app. A comedy recommendation for you now. Someone tweeted me the other day and said, when are you going to get Limmy on your show? Glaswegian comedian Limmy, Brian Limmond. And... Um, I have actually asked Limmy in the past if he'd be up for coming on the podcast, and I think he said yes, but we've yet to sort it out. I hope that's going to happen. But do check out Limmy's homemade show. Uh, here's the description that's on BBC iPlayer, where currently you can see it. Before Limmy made it onto BBC Scotland with Limmy's show, he became known through his own rough-and-ready, funny, homemade videos. When Limmy's show stopped, Limmy took to Vine and YouTube, racking up millions of views for videos made on nothing more than his phone. Limmy's homemade show takes the DIY style of his homemade videos, 
the cast of one, the staying at home and losing his marbles, the going out and about and speaking his mind, and puts it on the telly. Limmy jumps from sketch to observation to nonsense. He'll take you down to the Clyde side for a tour of Glasgow and get into an argument with himself. He'll play you some techno nursery rhymes on his synth. He'll show you his toilet and a particular tile that's been bothering him. It's one of those shows that's not very easy to really do justice to in the description, as I believe you have just heard. But it's really worth seeing, I think. He's got a genius for capturing the way that the mind works when it's idle and when it starts getting a bit frayed and paranoid. And he illustrates it by shooting these conversations with himself. He shoots them himself. He has the conversations with himself, playing all the different parts of the conversation. Apart from anything else, it's very cleverly and smoothly edited so that these encounters with different facets of his own mind flow very amusingly, but also quite unsettlingly. It's good. It's good. I guess it's not everybody's cup of tea. But uh, I found it to be a great cup of tea. And finally this week, wow, this is like a magazine program. Here's a message that I got from Mark's Twitter. Mark is from Welland Garden City East. And it says on his profile, co-creator of my sons, Jack and Maxton. Maxton, that's a good, I haven't heard the name Maxton before. That's a good name. Anyway, Mark's Twitter says, Hey, Adam Buxton, I'd like to weigh in on the fun year pronunciation debate. It sounds like you've had previously, ha 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 ha. So he's talking about my struggle to settle on one way of saying the year. Sometimes I'll say 2018, and then people say, no, that's too American. So then I say 2018, but it's such a mouthful that I end up just making even more of a meal of it. Mark's Twitter says in his message, pre-2000, it was always 1986, since 1066 at least. 2000 to 2009 is a bit awkward, but from 2010 onwards, should it not be 2017? And I think he's right. You know, we were perfectly happy saying 1965, 19... I'm not going to go through all the years but just saying 19 and then the number after that. Why can't we go back to that? I think we're safely through the 2000s bit. Yeah, it would have been weird saying 2001, etc. But we can go back now, can't we? 2018, that's perfectly fine. I mean, I'm aware that there are some people who got that memo a while ago, (laughs) but I wasn't one of them. So that's thanks, Mark's Twitter. I'm going to adopt that as policy now. 2018 it is. Wow, this is important stuff, but we should head home. Rose! Rosie! Oh, look at this. Maximum fly pass from the hairy bullet. Beautiful, man. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell, as ever, for his invaluable production support. To Matt Lamont for additional conversation editing. Thanks to Really Quite Something Limited for their work on the app. Don't forget to check out the free Adam Buxton app. For goodness sake, do it now. And thanks finally and most especially to you. Wow. You made it right the way through to the end. I wish I could give you some kind of medal or at least a hug. I'm going to hug you. Come on, you stand there. 
Eine, come on. Hang on now, come on, guys. I'm on a hug you, hug you, hug you, hug you. Oh, I went too far, didn't I? That was inappropriate. I'm sorry. Until next time, we share the same aural space. For goodness sake, take care. I love you. Bye! That was echoey.